I should know better than to service plan with Josh and put these unbelievably powerful songs right before I get up to preach. It just makes me feel like I don't even need to preach. We've just sung everything I could say, and yet the Word of God has a message for us this morning, and it's my privilege to bring that to you. My name is Jacob Hatfield. I'm the preaching pastor here at Grace. Thanks for worshiping with us. This past Monday, the elders and I had a chance to go to a one-day pastor's conference down at Redeemer Bible Church in Minnetonka, and it was so encouraging, enriching for all of us, and the main point of this time together was to refresh and remind us as those who handle the word and preach and teach that all of the Bible is about Jesus. In fact, all of life is about Jesus. And I was so encouraged as a pastor, and I want to encourage you and pass this along, that no matter where we are in the preaching schedule, whether it's New Testament or Old Testament, whatever it is, Jesus is there. And no matter where you are in your life, the words of Christ are what you need. So I am reaffirming to you this morning my commitment to preach Christ and Him crucified. You don't need to know what I have to think. You need to know what the Bible says. And it was a great encouragement for us to be able to be at this time together with 80 or 90 other pastors and be encouraged from the Word of God. So that was our week. And as I preach, as we minister, as we walk through books of the Bible, one of the main things I want to do, in addition to faithfully handling the text, is to show you the beauty of Jesus. I want to show you His power. His wisdom, his care, his knowledge, all of those things he possesses and wants us to know about him. It was just such an encouraging time for us to be there and to hear from the word. Now one of the ways that we honor Christ, one of the ways that we glorify him is by obeying what his word tells us to do. Right? Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commandments. My commandments are not burdensome. So as we, as we come to this section, now we're going to end Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We've been working through this text for a while. But one of the things that I want to point out is that there is, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, there is a way to obey what the Bible tells us in our own strength, which is futile, hopeless, and there is a way to obey the scriptures in a way that honors God and glorifies Christ And that is through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. So I don't want you to just hear these encouragements and these exhortations this morning from the Word and come away and think, boy, I just got to work a little bit harder. The point is, is that Jesus Christ, through the working of His Spirit, has given us everything we need for life, for godliness, and for obedience to His Word. So one of the ways that we honor Jesus in this church is by faithfully obeying the word of Christ. And I'm eager to do that with you. So open up your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to Ephesians chapter 4. We are going to just read the last two verses. This is our text for this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
Would you pray with me as we begin? Father in heaven, we come to you now this morning and ask for your help once again. You have been faithful in the past to send your spirit to open the eyes of those who are blind, to soften the hardness of heart that we all have because of our sin. So Father, this morning, do a work through your word as we hear this very practical encouragement that was given not only for our personal benefit, but for the good of the church, would you come and do the work that only you can do? Enable us, Lord, by your Spirit to be faithful disciples, to be obedient to your word, not for the sake of our reputation or our own uh, thinking about how we are, but Lord, would you do this so that you receive the glory and we receive the help. It's in the name of Jesus, your Son, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to front load the the sermon a little bit this morning. I need to say something up front before we get into working through the text. And I mentioned this just a moment ago, but we are currently in a section of the Bible in Ephesians 4 that is heavy with application. There is a lot of instruction in these sections of Scripture Don't do this. Put this away. Do this. Act this way. Think this way. Live this way. Okay, there's a lot of instruction that's happening for us. And I want to ask the question, how should we respond to this? How are we to think about all of these commands? What do you think Paul's intention is? The Apostle Paul, as he writes the book of Ephesians, is Paul instructing us to read this to hear all these commands and come away with the idea that if we could just get our act together, we might be able to make some progress in obedience. Sometimes with our kids, we just think, man, if they could just get it, (laughs) if they just understood, they would do the right thing. Is that what Paul is, is saying to us? If you just get it, you can finally be obedient, Christians. I don't think so. But, you know, it's interesting when we come to texts like this, some, sometimes I'll hear what other people have done. And I was, I shouldn't say shocked. It was surprising how many people look at a text like Ephesians 4 with all of this imperative and for all of this do this kind of commands and turn it into some kind of ladder that the Christian is supposed to climb to gain access to God. That is not Paul's intention. These instructions are not so that you can earn favor with God, so that you can finally get an A on your spiritual report card. These are things that are only possible for us to do by the working of God's Spirit. Paul's intent, I think, is not for us to accomplish this in our own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, which God supplies. This is the same message that the world might give us, right? You need to be kind to one another. Be nice. And yet the world lacks what it takes to actually enable us to do this. When we lived here in Monticello, we lived right across the street from the bike path, the walking path. We go over there all the time and ride our bikes and walk and that kind of thing. And last year, for about two or three months, there was a section of time where there was all this chalk drawing on the sidewalk. You know, flowers and houses and this kind of thing. And then there was this writing We'd be walking and it would say, be nice. Walk a little bit more and it would say, be happy. A little bit more and it would say, be kind to each other. And I thought, hmm, why should I do that? 
Now, I get it, right? Are any of those things bad or wrong? Of course not. That's what we're being told here in the Bible. But what's the difference between when the world tells us to do something and when the Bible tells us to do something? The world lacks the power to enable us to obey that. Why should I be nice? Out of the goodness of my own heart? There is no goodness in my heart. The Bible tells us that. We're all sinful apart from Christ. So what is the point? Well, my point is that the world may desire that we be nice to each other, but it ultimately lacks what is necessary. John Bunyan is credited with this awesome quote. And he would say, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The law brings weight. Do this. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us what we need through the Spirit of God to walk in obedience to Him. And that's why I want to start, before we ever get into this text this morning, to tell you there is no hope of obedience for us apart from the Spirit of God. So don't look at this text and come away and say, I've really blown it, I haven't done the best I can, I need to, I need to do better. Of course there's a way in which we engage in this obedience, but it is ultimately the Spirit of God that gives us any hope. I'm going to have failed you as a preacher if you leave today and think that you can accomplish this text on your own. I can't and you can't. We need the Spirit of God. It's no accident that Paul, up until this point in Ephesians, has mentioned the Holy Spirit nine times. (laughs) He knows that we are totally dependent on him. So, with that on the front end, let's look at these imperatives from Paul. We'll start in verse 31, and I want you to keep your Bibles open or your device because we're going to jump back and forth between these two verses. Because what I see when I look at these two verses is that there are contrasts. So verse 31 might say the negative. In verse 31 and 32, then, there's a corresponding positive for us. So it might be helpful for you to see that as we go. So keep your Bibles open as we go through this. Paul is again, employing this Proverbs-like method in his teaching. You know the book of Proverbs, it'll say something like, the foolish man does such and such, but the wise man does this. Or, the wicked heart does this, but the righteous does this. So there's this contrast. Paul is giving us the negatives, what the life lived in the flesh looks like. And then in verse 32, he gives us what is possible by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. First, he says in verse 31, look with me, to let all bitterness be put away from you. Bitterness in this context can be described as a hard-heartedness that harbors resentment, maybe about the past, maybe about a present situation. Rick Phillips says this, bitterness is the self-pitying reaction to things not going our way. Ouch. Bitterness is the self-pitying reaction to things not going our way. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Just me? Okay, that's fine. When things don't pan out like we hoped, when people get in the way of our plan, do you respond with resentment? You get angry because you didn't get your way? That's called bitterness, according to what the scriptures tell us. A bitter person will always find something to complain about. 
There is never something to make a bitter person happy. There's always a negative. You know what I think of when I was thinking about bitterness? It's almost Christmas time. Hopefully you and your family read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, classic Christmas story. Ebenezer Scrooge is the epitome of bitterness. He is bitter because of what happened in the past. He's bitter and angry about his present situation. And he is sour as a lemon to everybody around him. That is bitterness. Oh, kind of a taste in your mouth, right? And I think one of the reasons that Paul draws attention to this particular thing that he wants to root out of the church is because he knows that bitterness not only has this, this nasty effect on the people around us, but it will eat you from the inside if you hang on to this. Bitterness is one of those things that if left to grow and left to develop inside you, will make you the most miserable person. I think Paul knows this from his own experience. We read the book of Acts. And we read that Paul, in his younger years, was a Pharisee, he was a trained lawyer, and he was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, breathing out violent threats and imprisoning men and women and children. He hated the gospel of Christ because he didn't know. And he was bitter about his circumstances. He's, I think, talking here a little bit out of his own personal experience. Now, sometimes people have excuses or exceptions for being this way. Well, you don't know what happened. You don't know how deep the hurt was. You don't know the fill in the blank. Is that a justifiable reason to continue in an attitude of bitterness? I don't think so. I don't think the Bible gives us room for that. As much as we might be able to justify the feelings of anger or bitterness or resentment inside of us, I would tell you that by nursing those feelings, by keeping them alive and stoking the fire of resentment, you are allowing sin to continually have an effect on you. Nowhere in the Bible do we read that we should gradually put sin to death. The putting to death of sin ought to be instantaneous, done and over with. Now, does it always happen like that? No. But that's the instruction. And with bitterness, if it is allowed to continue, if you are letting bitterness harbor in your heart, you are allowing sin. Bitterness is a sin. And you are allowing that to continually affect you in the way that you live your life. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Because we legitimately have these feelings. It's not like the feelings are a sin. It's what you do with those things, right? So what are we to do when we are betrayed, when we are wronged, when we we have this impulse to feel bitterness or resentment? Look at the end of verse 32. I think this is the counterpart to the bitterness. End of verse 32. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. I think Paul is trying to help us see it's not enough for you and I to just Say no to the wrong things. That's, I, I think that's why he's put these verses together. What if all Paul ever said was, don't do this, don't be bitter, angry, wrathful, malice, all, just don't do that, amen, you are dismissed. Well, where, where would that leave us? We need a greater desire. We need a greater affection that will overshadow our desire for sin, for bitterness, for anger. 
We must welcome what the new man brings through regeneration in the gospel of Christ and put away the old things. Now the way to remove the bad qualities, to get rid of those, is not only to stiff arm them, but it is to cultivate then the right behaviors, the right attitudes and reactions. This is what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. He has a sermon by the same title, and in that sermon he argues that for the Christian it is not enough just to say no to sin, but we need a new desire, we need a new thing in our life. You see, God isn't a God who stands up and says, Thou shalt not desire. God is a God who says, you shall desire the right thing. (laughs) And Chalmers knew this. And so he writes this sermon and preaches this sermon, talking about the fact that as Christians, you and I need a greater affection for God, a greater affection for the things of the world, not the things of the world. Word, world, I know they're close, very different. We need this. And I'm so encouraged by this. In fact, I, this is, it's just this little book, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I've got about 10 copies on the table. I would strongly encourage you to pick this up. If you don't have any money, grab it anyways. If you do, they're five bucks. This book is helpful in doing exactly what Paul is trying to get us to do here. Get rid of the old, but we do that not just by saying no, but by saying yes to a good affection. We need the expulsive power of a new affection. So pick one of those up. I think it'd be really helpful. So to put off bitterness then, we need to rather put on forgiveness. And I think it's noteworthy. It can't see it as well in the English, but Paul uses a present active tense when he's talking about this of the verb. What he's saying is not just forgive Like, this happened in the past, just forgive somebody and then move on. He literally says, you ought to be forgiving. Continually forgiving one another. If you've spent any amount of time in the church, or with people in general, you know that offense happens. (laughs) You know that people unintentionally and sometimes intentionally sin against one another, and there is offense that happens. And I think rather than holding on to those feelings of bitterness and the the offense that comes in. Paul is instructing us here, hey, put away that bitterness and rather forgive one another continually. When the disciples asked Jesus, how much do we have to forgive? (laughs) What did Jesus tell them? Jesus essentially says that there is never a time when we are allowed to practice unforgiveness. This is a continual action in the life of the church so what, what motivates this kind of forgiveness? We already said that the Holy Spirit enables it, but what motivates us? What causes us to want to forgive? Because sometimes the hurt is really, really deep. Paul says it, I think, right here in the text. We are to forgive as God in Christ forgave us. The forgiveness that we have received ought to be the same kind of forgiveness that we extend to one another. This is such an amazing reality. I don't know if you realize, sometimes we talk kind of flippantly about, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means your sins are forgiven. What? Really? 
Paul said it this way in Colossians chapter 2. This is verse 13. And you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We just sang this. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. That is what Paul is talking about. That is the forgiveness that is offered to every child of God, and that is the way that we ought to respond to one another. This hit me so hard this week. I'm sitting in my office alone, because you guys never come and see me, but I'm sitting there alone in my office, and I'm studying and preparing this message, and it just hit me. I'm sitting there in my office crying alone because of this reality that all my sin has been forgiven in Christ And of all the things, a George Strait song comes to my mind. You guys have no idea how weird I am, but you're going to find out if you hang around long enough. George Strait had this song called, A Love Without End, Amen. And in that song he says, Last night I dreamed I died and stood beside the pearly gates, when suddenly I realized there must be some mistake. If they know half the things I've done, they'll never let me in. Now, I'm not trying to say that George Strait is some theological bastion that we should all follow. But isn't that the truth? You know your heart. You know the sin that you have committed, the sin that you still commit. Guess what? God knows that too. And he still forgave you. He took that sin, the record of sin, Paul says in Colossians 2, and nailed it to the cross with Christ. This is the motivating power of the gospel. When we use the word gospel, it means so many things, but maybe this is the primary thing, that God in Christ has taken the rottenness of our sin and nailed it to the cross with Christ, therefore removing the burden and the weight that we carry and placing it on Christ. That is the exchange that happens at the cross. That is the exchange we celebrate every week when we come to the table. The forgiveness of Jesus Christ is what motivates our forgiveness. How? How are you going to hear that Christ has forgiven all of your sin and then turn around to another person who has also been bought with the blood of Christ and not extend forgiveness? Now, like I said with the bitterness thing, there's always an exception. <laughs> there's always some reason why we, no, I, I, I could, that's a little bit too much. That's, I, I can't do that. But the Bible offers no such exception to us. Paul tells us, be forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, going back to verse 31, Paul now uses... Four terms, there's like two pairs here, of these negative things that must be put away from the Christian. Wrath and anger, clamor and slander. And we should note that there's somewhat of a progression here to this list, isn't there? The wrath and anger, these are internal things that that can boil, that can build up, and then they come out 
in the form of clamor and slander. And we'll talk about what those things mean. These are the attitudes and behavior that must be put away or gotten rid of from the life of the Christian. We've already seen Paul make an argument in verse 26 for the proper use of anger. Namely, when we see the testimony or the laws of God being trampled, when we see his glory being defamed, it's okay to get worked up about that. But here he's talking about this internal, boiling, ongoing kind of anger. And that is a sinful anger. He uses the same two words for wrath and anger in Romans 2, 2 verse 8, when he talks about the righteous judgment of God. He says that the future of people who obey unrighteousness will be wrath and fury. Same, same two words. If a person continues in these ways, if you continually harbor the bitterness, the anger, the seething inside, it's going to come out. And how does it come out? Paul uses two examples, clamor and slander. Now, clamor is an interesting word. Probably don't use that too much anymore. But it's, it's the word for loud yelling, arguments, like combative yelling. That's what clamor means. You might associate it with like making noise. Is, is, is there a clamor outside, something like that? That's, that's true. But Paul's specific use has to do with words with loud argumentation back and forth. You see, anger can only boil under the surface so long and it comes out. You can only hide it so long. It's like a volcano. When this molten lava is boiling and boiling and it expands and finally, boom, it comes out. And everything it touches is destroyed. Such is the life that is marked by this kind of anger. Now, one of the ways to gauge whether this is something you struggle with or something maybe someone close to you struggles with is to watch and observe how little it takes to set someone off. This is kind of a telltale sign. For a person who's angry all the time, it doesn't take very much. And so we can recognize in ourselves, do we have disproportionate responses to situations? Do we easily escalate a situation unnecessarily are there overreactions in the way that we respond to different circumstances and situations just self-diagnostic questions to see if this is something that we struggle with or not ask someone who knows you is this a problem now out of this internal anger or wrath paul says also comes slander what is slander well, simply put, slander is using your words to cut somebody else down, right? Saying false information about somebody else. This is actually a legal term. You can be sued for slander. You can be brought to court and prosecuted for doing this. Now, just side note, if the world, who does not know God, does not love God, if the world recognizes this as such a problem that it can be prosecuted in a court of law, what does that say for how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church? There is no room for this kind of use of language in the church. And if you have been on the receiving end of this, you know how painful it can be. Several years ago, I was in the church, and there was an individual who'd had a really bad experience with a pastor maybe 15 years earlier. I didn't have a really close relationship with this person. 
But for some reason, they chose to kind of make me the target of that past bitterness and resentment and slandered me to the elders and the other people in the church. Now, even if you know that it's not true, even if you know that the people around you know it's not true, it's still really hard to take. It's damaging and destructive, and sometimes you, you can't come back from it. So when Paul looks at this church, these early churches, which are going to be the foundation of the church throughout all the world, and he recognizes what is the most important things that I can tell thee. I want these people to love one another, to trust one another. So what does he say? Let all slander be put away from you. So, let's make another comparison here. Rather than slander, if we use verse 32 to compare, to go back and forth, we should be tender-hearted. Rather than engaging in slander, we ought to be tender-hearted. A heart that has been so softened by the gospel, a heart being molded by Christ, this is the heart that is tender and understanding towards the people of God and will reject the idea immediately of spreading false information and cutting somebody else down. Now maybe you have the idea that being tender-hearted is primarily a feminine quality. And maybe, generally speaking, this is easier for some women to do than men. But men, I want to call you to this specifically. We ought to lead in this area of tender-heartedness. Tender-heartedness is not synonymous with weakness or not having a spine or whatever. Quite the contrary. Having a tender heart is a sure sign that the gospel of Jesus Christ has so penetrated your life that you are willing to let go of and lay aside the prideful things that we normally hang on to and respond rather with gentleness and patience towards one another. True strength is power under control. True strength is power under control. You cannot be out of control and violent with your words and and mouthy and explosive and be tenderhearted at the same time. They do not and will not coexist. So, men and women, let the gospel of Christ soften your heart to the point where you can say, yes, I want to be tenderhearted towards those around me, especially towards the people of God. Now Paul ends verse 31 with a kind of generalization. He said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor and slander be put away from you. And now he says, along with all malice. What does he mean by malice? Malice is just kind of a general word for evil intentions. Evil motives. For those of us who belong to Christ... We have been saved by the grace of God. The Holy Spirit is actively working in us to make us more and more like Jesus. And yet, we still fight with and struggle against the remaining sin that is inside of us. Paul is saying that all wicked thinking, all unhelpful speech, all wrong motivations ought to be done away with. Well, then what? The beginning of verse 32, we see the last of these comparisons. Rather than malice and engaging in malice, we are to be, what does it say? Kind to one another. Scott spoke about the kindness of God 
in our exhortation today. And you and I, if we belong to Christ, are children of God. And we are called to imitate, imitate this kind of, I was going to say emulate, and then I decided to imitate and they melded into one word. We are called to model. There we go. I can handle that one. We are called to model this kind of kindness. Kindness is at its root a desire to do good to others. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's an evidence that God is at work inside of us. And I just, for myself, I want to be a kind person. I want to see a need and help. I want to be sensitive enough to know and read what's going on and not speak out of turn. As I shepherd you as a church, I want to be a kind shepherd. This is how Jesus was with his people. He is the good shepherd. And he calls us to model our shepherding after him. Now as we come to the close, and there's, there's so much more that we could say, but we're going to end chapter 4 today. And as we come to the close of this chapter, and we have heard all of these instructions, all of these commands to get rid of the bad, to put on the good. Maybe um, you've heard all of this and you kind of feel crushed under that weight. It's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot here. I mean, this is total transformation. By the time we get through the book of Ephesians, there is not one part of our life that will be untouched by this instruction. Paul is going to hit everything by the time we're done. And when you get it all at once, it can be really overwhelming. So what are we to do? Maybe you feel crushed under the weight of this and you're asking, how could I ever do all that is required of me? That's a good question. And I have the answer. You can't. But God can. God gives us the ability through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit That's why I started today by front-loading the sermon and telling you that it is all up to the work of God in us. You can't pull yourself up the ladder in your own strength. It just doesn't work. We, We sang this again. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. That's true. But I want you to remember, as we close this chapter, and as we close for the morning, we are weak, but he is strong. We are unstable, but he is a rock. We are needy, and he is sufficient. We are poor, and he is rich. What we lack, he makes up. What we need, he freely gives. And maybe most importantly, what God has promised in his word, he will do. So hear the instruction of the word to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you and depend upon him for the help. Let's pray as we come to the table this morning. Father, thank you that you did not leave us without instruction. You did not leave us in the world to figure things out on our own. Rather, you set your spirit which at the moment of conversion permanently takes up residence in the life of every believer and enables us now to live a life that is pleasing to you. So help us with this, God. We desire to be obedient. We desire to walk in your ways, to walk worthy of the calling you have given to us, but we need your help. 
And we thank you that that is a prayer that you are ready and willing to answer. So come and work through your spirit, Father, and apply this text to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.